This is David Tarkington, pastor of the First Baptist Church of Orange Park, Florida. Thank you for downloading this sermon. For any other information or questions you may have, please go to firstfam.org or give us a call at 904-264-2351. If you have a copy of God's Word, turn to Hebrews chapter 2, and we'll only stand together for the reading of the Word at this point. So I appreciate you doing that. And uh, as is our practice, especially for those who are guests, when I finish reading the passage of Scripture that we will be focusing on today, uh, I will make a declarative statement that this is the Word of God, and with the opportunity for you to respond together, thanks be to God. So there you know what's coming. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning in verse 10, as we continue through this New Testament letter to the believers. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. And in verse 14, it continues, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What an appropriate passage as we continue through the book of Hebrews, looking forward to what we'll be celebrating together at our Good Friday service and, of course, next Sunday on Resurrection Day. We're looking at this and we're thinking about what is being unpacked here by the writer to, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for these Hebrew Christians in the first century, but also this timelessness that we have recognizing what it is saying to us today. Thanatophobia. There's a phobia for those of you that like to Google fears, or maybe that's just me looking for illustrations. Thanatophobia. Do you know what that is a fear of? Without Googling. I can't understand what half of you said, so I'm going to presume you're all wrong, (laughs) but somebody probably knows. It's the fear of death. The Cleveland Clinic website states that, this is the quote, while it is natural to feel anxious about death from time to time, thanatophobia is an anxiety disorder that can disrupt every aspect of your life. There are pages and pages online dedicated to this fear. And once something gets assigned as a phobia, it is defined as creating an intense sense of worry or panic about certain activities, objects, or situations. And I am not joking nor minimizing any of that. I know that's very real. And some of you are facing some phobias even in your own lives. So I'm not going to do a study or a survey on phobias today, but it, uh, it is commonly understood, at least... I believe it is, to be, it is true, just based on talking with people and working with families and working with individuals, 
that when it comes to thanatophobia, maybe not to the level of phobia, that there is a, a, an overwhelming desire to not talk about death, to not talk about death, to not consider death, to not focus on death, and to not, of course, to experience it, and definitely not to experience the death of a loved one. And yet, as we know what Solomon wrote in the Old Testament, that death is the destiny of every man and the living should take it to heart. So though we know mentally that a wise person would consider death from a biblical perspective, we also know uh, emotionally that we just don't want to do that sometimes. We don't want to talk about that. That's not fun. No one is, 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 it's just not how we're wired. And so, Death becomes that, that, that concept that we don't want to focus upon, don't want to talk about, don't want to deal with. And so there is an overwhelming, a lot of people do, go out of their way to do everything possible to avoid even the consideration of it. Our avoidance of death leads to a lot of interesting things. For instance, and I've spoken of this before, there is the softening of terminology, if, if that makes sense to you. So we won't even say our loved one died we will say they passed away. We will say they passed on. We will say, well, they've graduated or they've moved on. We'll come up with any phrase we can rather than say he died or she died. And I've even had some come to me and say, you know, they've heard me say that before and go, I just can't say it yet. And I'm like, well, I understand that, but you, it's kind of the, it, you're not alone. It's kind of very common in our culture to do everything to avoid even saying it. And by not saying it, it, we do that to hopefully make us feel a little bit better. Because there's a finality to death, at least as we understand it. As we continue through this letter to the Hebrew believers, we cannot avoid what it is speaking of. And as we look to this Friday coming here, we need to remember as we celebrate Good Friday, this day that is an anomaly in title as we think about what's good about Friday. He died on the cross. Well, we'll get into that later on, and you understand that likely as a believer. But the fact of the matter is that um, we're moving towards a day where the celebration of the actual, complete, and full death of Jesus Christ takes place. I mean, he really died. He didn't just, not, wasn't unconscious, wasn't just passed out, wasn't in a coma. It was death. And then he raised uh, to life again three days later, he didn't raise himself to life. The Father raised him back to life. There's a whole concept of consideration to think through. That messes with your Trinitarian understanding, right? It, it's true, but it makes my brain hurt. Well, you know, not me. I'm the pastor. I get it. <laughs> I believe it. I do get it to that level, but there's going to be that mystery that will not be made fully clear until I am standing before the, the Son at that point. But Christ, who lived a life intently focused on Friday, because that's why he came to live, so that he could die. God brings us head on into the truth regarding death and what it means. For without a real biblical understanding of death, the life we long to have will never be fully experienced. We need to hold on to that reality. We have spoken in recent weeks of Jesus Christ's sovereignty and his superiority. We know that Christ himself, by the words in Hebrews, is the one through whom the Father created. He is the one that is through whom everything was created. And that often isn't spoken of. 
He is the second person of the Trinity, fully God and known as the Son of God, but also God the Son, fully man, to which he used this, def- this term to define himself over 80 times in the Gospels, Son of Man. He is not just a Son of Man, he is the Son of Man, as it is defined by his terminology, as opposed to how the Old Testament prophet used it. Christ is the center. He is the key. That should seem obvious, but we, me, I am a forgetful person. Anybody here a forgetful person? Anybody here forget anything, right? Anybody here know, anybody here know where your keys are? Anybody at all? Anybody? My keys to the church are at home somewhere because I forgot them. So um, thank God for other keys or we'd be all in the parking lot having an outdoor tent service today. Forgetfulness. That's why we're, not why, but that is a great reminder of why we're going to be observing the Lord's Supper even in just a few moments this morning. This do in remembrance of me, he said, because I know you and you forget. Even when you remember in your heart, you forget the severity and the seriousness of this. So the writer of Hebrews understood the fullness of who Christ is. And in so doing, the topic shortly drives head on into this concept of death. We're not even into the third chapter, and we're already talking about this. Let's look at verse 10 again, and for and through is the subheading. It says, it was fitting that he, Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. It is fitting that he, Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist. That's an interesting definition. Pause on that for just a moment. It is a declarative statement for the Hebrew Christians being magnetically drawn back into their incomplete view of God by seeking to abandon that which they have affirmed prior. Let me help you understand what's happening here. These Jewish people in the New Testament era, in the first century, have come to surrender their lives to Jesus Christ as their Messiah, their Lord, their Savior. But they're having internal pressures from their family members who are Jewish. They're having external pressures from the community and the government, which is not real excited about Christians because you can't just be a Christian and, 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 uh, and declare that Caesar is a god as well. So there's that going on. And so these folks who are really excited about being Christians are feeling this magnetic draw back to comfort comfort to a degree and safety to their ways, which would mean this New Testament stuff's a little scary. Let's go live in the Old Testament in their perspective because that's how they grew up. That's the comfort food. That's what makes them feel safe. And so the writer of Hebrews knows this is what they're facing, and so he is reminding them that which they had declared they knew but may have forgotten. Christ, for whom and by whom all things exist. Christ is the end and the means to the end. He is the goal of history. He is the agent of history. In the book of Romans, Paul stated that all things are to him, through him, and for him. Here's a good Sunday morning word. History is not anthropocentric. And what that means is it is not centered on man. I know, Chris, you love that, right? You want me to write that up? Anthropocentric. I looked it up. I don't use that word often. So anthropocentric, centered on man. History 
in a secular worldview is man-centered. It's all about the latest uh, biography of, of, of world leaders and this and what man did and what man did here and what this man did there. But, but from a real biblical worldview, we understand that history is not man-centered. History is theocentric, God-centered. He is the central part of history as at the same time the author of all that is in our history and he is the fulfillment of all that will come. What happens is our nature is to move him off center stage, put someone else or primarily ourselves on center stage so that our stories are all about us. Even when we declare we live, it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. But it's really only all about you if it fits my schedule and my preferences and my desires. This statement by the author here, under the inspiration of God himself through the Holy Spirit, is no small thing. For this shifts the natural worldview of every individual in this room. Let me just say, if this offends you, just know we're all in the same boat here. Every human being ever born, every person in this room, and every person throughout history is born with a sin nature. Your sins, by your own definition of what's really bad and what's even worse, is comparative because we always try to find someone that's a little worse, right? You know, we talk about that. Craig and I joked about that this morning. You want to you feel better about yourself? You want to feel pretty? Hang out with ugly people, right? That's how you do it, right? Don't, don't look at people when I say things like that. <laughs> so we make it about us. It's our sin nature. We're born into this. That's why scripture says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Not everybody but you, or everybody but your grandma, or everybody from that, re that really nice person down the street. Everybody has sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So everybody in the room, we are born into this sin nature. Therefore, part of our nature, part of how we see the world, is we cannot help ourselves. Life is centered around us. We have our preferences and our desires and our tastes and things we like. And it frustrates us when everybody else just doesn't understand that. Doesn't it bother you when everybody else is out there not behaving according to your rule book of behavior? If you have not experienced that, we, we, well, we, we don't have a bus anymore, but we could get in a bus and just go down 17 or Blanding and just enjoy the misbehavior of everybody else on the road. We could go sit at the mall this afternoon and just enjoy how no one's behaving because nobody behaves according to our 100% way they ought to. But here's what's really odd. Everybody else has a book too. And you're in the category of not behaving. We're, a, we're just a gathering of misbehaving sinners. But thanks be to God, he understands our nature. This is kind of bred within us from our conception that, that sin is not taught, though there are sins that are taught, but it is natural for the heart of humanity. Scripture speaks of the natural man. The natural man is centered on himself. The natural man and woman centered on self. The psychological challenge in a world, here, here's the thing, where many in this world feel beaten down, feel demeaned and categorized by man-made caste systems and, and, and biases and prejudices and, and, and different organized ways of looking at other people. We all, at some level, at least, and some even worse than others, are battling a low self-esteem that is fueled by others and a world that wants to ensure you have that. Even the most arrogant, self-proud individual, if you kind of peel it away, 
you realize they're, a, they're, a, they're an arrogant jerk because they don't like themselves, even if they don't know it. I mean, it's just kind of how that works. Yet even in this brokenness of this world that falsely believes the answer to a self-image problem is to inundate people with phrases and thought trials of positive thinking and coach speak and posters and t-shirts and hashtags of things like, well, just do better or you're great or you've got this or you have what it takes. We know those never work because they're not fully true which really frustrates us. I mean, I want to hear it just like you do. Please tell me that I do a good job and I have what it takes. And in and of itself, it's not sinful, but it is an ingenious tactic of our enemy to give us a not complete truth. The enemy that we face, the enemy of God, Satan himself, through the sin-infected reality of this world, has pushed a well-orchestrated self-despair upon God's image bearers through identity politics and perpetual lives about self. Only, here's the thing, so think about this, we're in a sin-sick world, we're in a, an infected world with sin that is our definition, and, and, and the words and the messages are, you don't have what it takes, you're a loser, you're this, you're that, you're too fat, too short, too tall, too skinny, too ugly, too whatever. Those are the messages, and our students get this um, bombarded with this, because now there's people hiding on social media, texting them that. And then we get it as adults, and sometimes you never break out of it, and so that's why there's not a counselor or a therapist in the county that's taking new customers or patients, because everybody's suffering. I don't know how many times people call me, do you have a counselor you recommend? Maybe. I don't know. If I give you one, they don't have room for anybody. Now, don't come to me later. Well, I got five guys, you know, they got a fish on their card, and they'll take it. I don't know who that is. I'm not recommending anybody. I don't know, right? You can put a fish on your card. That doesn't mean you know Jesus. I'm just saying. We'll talk later, but you know, talk to Mike Godfrey. Give him all that. All right, now, <laughs> it's his job. Um, but what happens is this, is the enemy created this, or the, the sin, sin of the world, it, it, it builds this. So then the enemy comes back. Here's what's amazing. With people being inundated with these lies, so here's the enemy's tactic. To offer well-marketed placebos the well-marketed placebos of self-worth based on everything but the one, the one who can bring healing, hope, and life. Therefore, everything remains temporal fixes with no eternal hope. I'm just, this is just kind of how it works. It's an ingenious tactic. So when it comes to death, fear of death is the natural end. Fear is natural. We're, fr we're afraid of things we've not experienced. And death is that finality, and so it is the natural end for those whose lives are centered upon themselves. That's why people who don't know the Lord are super afraid of that, afraid of aging, afraid of losing, afraid of being left behind, afraid of missing out, afraid of being ignored, afraid of being forgotten if their loved one dies before them, afraid of ultimately dying themselves. That, those lies, those fears are fueled by a world and an enemy that gets this. And so they live in the hearts, minds, and emotions of even those that claim to know Christ, but all of God's image bearers. 
Thus, here's the reminder. Christ is the one for whom and by whom everything exists. He is the center. He is the pinnacle. He is the point. And that perspective, if understood fully, and I'm, 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 I get it. You can't just read it and go, okay, I get it now. It's going to be hard for some. It's going to be a, a, a surrender for those, especially those that are unbelievers. But even for believers who are battling this anxiety, it's going to be, it's going to be, uh, it's not going to be, he'll pray a prayer and tomorrow you're going to feel great. It's going to be a long journey likely. But it's an understanding that when I forget, I need to remember it's all about Jesus. And that's more than a song. That's more than, a, than, a, than something I can put on a plaque or a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. It's something I got to really believe that it is about him. In verse 10, let me read that again. It says, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory. This is just a gut check, right? Here's a reality. The son of God, the sovereign king, the one who became less than the angels for just a season so that he could pay the penalty for our sins, that that one for whom and by whom all things exist, the creator of all is bringing, it says, many sons to glory. And that's an encouraging word. It says many, you know that on our planet with every human being that's ever lived, you can, you can say men and women, sons and daughters, but there are many who have redeemed, been redeemed by the blood of the lamb and are in heaven even now that have already lived out their existence here on earth and been glorified. They're in heaven right now. So there are many who are in heaven. And, and even right now on this planet, there are many who have surrendered their lives to, to Jesus Christ as Lord, who have taken on the new name of child of God, who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. There are many who have been saved, and that is something, that is exciting, that is incredible, but understand, many is not the same word as all. You get that, right? Many is not the same as all. Not everyone gets to heaven. Not all will be saved. There's more we could say about that, but here's just a brief reminder Challenging, if not motivating. In Matthew 7, Christ says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Not all will be glorified. Many will be Maybe not even a majority. In fact, not a majority. But there'll be many, and I pray there are many more. But just so we don't gloss over this truth given to the Hebrew believers, the glory that will be found will not be based on a human sense of fairness. Now, now let me just let that sink in because that has been a complaint for a lot. Well, that just doesn't seem fair. I talk to individuals a lot. I've had a great conversation in the last few weeks with a friend, and you know, and, and it always comes up. And I, it, we joked about it. And he said, "What about that guy who lives out in the middle of, of a tribe in the jungle of South America or somewhere? Never heard the gospel." This I said, and I just said, "It amazes me how many people are really concerned about these unnamed people in the middle of jungles." I'm not quite sure they're really concerned about their salvation, or they're just using it to justify their under their belief that they have perpetuated in their own brain that the God that everyone is saying is the real deal just doesn't seem fair in their economy. What about him? I mean, do you really care about him? Then go, go, go talk to him. Well, that's, that's a different story. See, we try to put ourselves at the center of the story and therefore we try to create a God in our own image that works based on our own economy of how things should be or shouldn't be. 
And God says, I don't think that's how this works. In fact, you can see what he said to Job about that. Were you here when I created all this? No, stop. That's a paraphrase. And I think we need to understand that there are those that just struggle with the fairness of God do not understand the holiness fully of God. There is a universal understanding of salvation. Universalists believe that everybody goes to heaven. Unitarian Universalists believe there is no trinity and everybody gets to be uh, graduated up to whatever heaven is and it's a good place. But Universalists believe just everybody's good and they're going to go to heaven. And even good Bible-believing, church-attending Baptists sometimes believe in universal theology, especially when their lost loved ones die. I knew it would get quiet for that one. Because it hurts us to consider that uncle so-and-so is not a Christian, though there was no fruit in his life and he hated church. But he was a good guy. He mowed the neighbor's yard. He, he, he fed people at Thanksgiving. Well, good. But we struggle with this many and all concept. And, and, and I don't know if you've ever been to a funeral where the guy preaching behind the podium is talking about the most godly individual on the planet, but you know who's in the box and you're thinking he's in the wrong room. You understand what I'm saying? You can't preach someone into heaven after they've already died. And just because they're gooder than the other people you know, gooderness, that's a word, does not get you into heaven or enter, enter, enter you into the eternal family of God, but surrender to Christ. Quickly, let me move on. That same passage in verse 10 at the end, it says that Christ is made perfect through suffering. Now that is a confusing statement, so let me just jump on this for a moment. What does it mean that Christ is made perfect? Isn't Jesus God? Well, yes, he is God. Isn't God perfect? Well, yes. Then how can Jesus be made perfect? Does that mean at some point he was imperfect? No. Welcome to English translations. The teaching here does not mean that at any point Jesus was imperfect and then made perfect as in perfected and, 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 and complete in that regard. What this word means in this instance is this. Uh, well, the reason it doesn't mean that is because that would preclude, uh, presume that Jesus uh, was immoral at some point or had sinned at some point and there was made complete. Uh, that's a works theology and that's heresy. So let's move on. What does this mean, this word perfect in this verse? It means what it meant in the Old Testament because the Hebrew readers are reading it because they're struggling with this whole law and grace and their Old Testament safety and their New Testament life. And that's a Bible study for a deeper time another day. But the word perfect here references the Old Testament teaching of the consecration of the priest that indicated they were qualified for the role and the job of priest. What does that matter to the Gentiles? Not much, but it is super important. We should at least acknowledge it and read it. But as Gentiles, we're going, I don't know why that matters. I hope you will stay with us as we go back to Leviticus in a few weeks. And then we come back here in Hebrews and we see how you can't read Hebrews without reading Leviticus. And you really don't get the fullness of it if you don't understand the Old Testament concept of the high priest. And how in the world is Jesus a priest when he's not even of the tribe of Levi? And that all gets answered. Isn't this fun? Yeah, I knew two of you would like it. All right. But it's going to be fun. But his Jesus qualified as the role of the high priest absolutely made perfect in this role. His qualifications are made clear through his suffering, the suffering which we will celebrate on Friday. The suffering servant who is the saving sovereign did all that he did for the glory of the Father so that many may be glorified through him. Thus, the Savior, the qualified Savior, qualifies us 
to know the Father through, here's a good Sunday morning church word, sanctification. He's the sanctifier. He makes the impure pure. He makes the unclean clean. He makes the lost found and the unsaved saved and the irredeemable redeemed. He is the sanctifier, Jesus, the change agent, the Savior. And in in this statement of Jesus, the Christ, the Son, the perfect one, sanctifying, Harkens back to a number of passages in Leviticus. I'll just read them. Leviticus 20, verse 8, keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Leviticus 21, 8, you shall sanctify him, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I, the Lord who sanctify you, am holy. And in chapter 22, verse 9, they shall therefore keep my charge, lest they bear sin for it, and die thereby when they profane it. I am the Lord who sanctifies them. Who is it that makes the imperfect perfect, the irredeemable redeemed, the lost saved, and the unholy holy? It is the sanctifier, the only one who can. And that is God through Christ, who is our Savior and our brother. Now it's weird. Brother Jesus. Anybody grow up in a Baptist church where every man's a brother? Hey, brother, brother so-and-so, brother this, brother that, brother, 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 brother. Well, Jesus, it says, is this. It's kind of a weird concept when you think about it. It's not sacrilegious. It's true. The commonality is brothers and sisters does not remove the deity from Christ, nor does it mean that all distinctives are erased. Christ does the sanctifying. The rest of humanity is sanctified through him. And the writer here in the Hebrew writer goes back to the book of Psalms and the old hymn book, Psalm 22, 22, where the verse in the Old Testament says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will praise you, which is what he actually quoted to the Hebrews. Then he quotes two other passages from the prophet Isaiah And that's what you see in Scripture there in, uh, oh goodness, in Hebrews uh, 2, verses 13. Those are from Isaiah's writings. The brother, the sanctifier, the Christ. See, there are some here today who sadly, you were just not blessed with a good family experience. Your family life was terrible. Maybe it was abuse, maybe it was abandonment, maybe it was loneliness, maybe it was just a mess. And so when you come to church and we start singing about the family of God and we talk about being a family, you want that, but there's a little PTSD bubbling up within you. And it causes a little bit of anxiety. And that huge, you know it, but you feel this, and it's hard to make that leap. So this perfect family is what God offers what a precious gift. And some of you grew up and you had great family life. So for you, it doesn't seem like a, a hard jump, but then you realize, but even in your good family life, there were so many imperfections because you're a part of that family and you're imperfect. And so is everybody else in your family. But more than comparing and contrasting our earthly families, we rather look to something revealed here that's much deeper, more authentic, cemented in the nature of God, who is love, with a loving finder and reminder of our worth. You see, as I said, many people fear death. They fear, some people fear the pain that may come or whatever, but but those, some fear their loved ones dying more than they fear their own death. And they fear that because they fear what they believe will be overwhelming loneliness that will greet them immediately. 
So they avoid funerals. And they avoid, this is what tends to happen too, they will avoid entering into deep relationships for fear of getting too close to someone else that they may grieve them deeply and they don't want that. By the way, that's not new. In verse 14 it says this, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those through whom fear of death, fear of death, that's a lot of people, were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear of death equals lifelong slavery. That's an interesting concept. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Let me just say, cliches often keep us from hearing truth. Religious cliche, I say them, you say them, I'll probably have one here in a minute. We say these cliches, and they're not untrue, but sometimes the cliches just resonate in our brains, you know, let go and let God. I mean, it's not in the Bible, but we say it, right? And we, what does that mean? I don't know, but we let go. Let go of what? I don't know, whatever you're holding on to. Let God. Let God do what? Well, now you've got a three-hour sermon to figure out what you're talking about, but it looks good on like a T-shirt. And sometimes our cliches keep us from truth. But despite the cliches heard over the years, Jesus' love for us is demonstrated clearly here. Here's a cliche. You ever heard this one? How much does Jesus love you? This much. Oh, that's corny. But it's true. For his death on the cross was to glorify the Father and for the love of you and me and all who would say yes. He paid the penalty. He took on flesh, lived the perfect life to fullness, died so that the one who has the power over death and the one who holds the fear that over us over death could no longer win. Why? To deliver you and me. Verse 16 stands out. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. I love that because we've already talked about angels prior. Jesus, is, or the writer is saying this, Abraham's are, or angels are a big deal, but Jesus didn't die for angels. He died for the, the offspring of Abraham. And now I say that, oh, offspring of Abraham. So many of you are now looking up Steve Tony to go, can you do a genealogy for me to figure out if I'm related to Abraham? And he can. And if you're a child of God, you are. Because you're either a direct descendant through blood, or as a Christian, you're a grafted branch adopted into the family of God. And a child of Abraham. So, to the children of God, who did he die for? For the Father and for you. You and for me and for many who have been glorified and will be. He did what he did for the Father's glory. He did what he did for your good and for my good, for our salvation, for our hope, for our eternity. Don't miss this, and if it's not clear today, don't leave until you get it clarified. Quit going through the motions. It's no accident you're here today. It's no accident God has brought you here to hear this the Lord who by nature is lovingly fatherly to all human beings. Understand that? People say, well, we're not all children of God. Does that mean God is not all of our father? God is fatherly to all, but he is heavenly father to those who have surrendered their lives to his son. I hope you know the Jesus we speak of. I hope you know the one we read about and we celebrate, and I hope you understand that as we celebrate Easter and Resurrection Sunday next week, that that is not an odd message for us. We don't have to come to it and go, oh, now we've got to talk about the resurrection. Why? Because we talk about it every time we gather. And I pray you know this resurrected Christ, and you understand the fullness of his love.